Happy Thanksgiving weekend, everyone. My name is Louis Menjavar, and I'm part of the teaching team here at Cornerstone. I also get to serve as the pastor for uh, Young Adult Ministries. This weekend, I'm pretty excited to share because I get the opportunity of sharing on something that I think is, uh, is pretty, pretty important principle. It has to do with this, with this one small yet significant idea. And that is that if we have a heart of gratitude, if we cultivate a heart of gratitude, it, it will end up opening our eyes to what God is already doing in our midst. And I'm hoping that as we walk through this um, account and we share on this idea together, that something of what God may want to prompt in us, maybe what he may want to put his finger on within our own soul, may come forth and uh, we be able to really hear him personally. And so I would love for us to invite him. We already have to ask his blessing over the word we're about to share. And uh, if, you, if you join me, I'd love to pray for that. And so, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you have brought us into your house. Thank you for uh, reminding us, God, of how good you are to us. And so we have sung these songs of your faithfulness and of your love that... Uh, will never leave us. And I thank you, God, that you are able to not just speak of your love in general terms, but you have made your love very personal to us and in the form of your Son. And So I pray that you would help us hear your voice as we sit on your word in this account of what happened in the life of... Uh, in an episode of ministry in Jesus' life. So I pray, God, that you would make that word personal, that you would speak to us, that our, our mind and our, the ear of our heart would be fully inclined to you. And that what may emerge is somewhat of a handle of what you want to say to us personally. So we pray for your presence to remain here, for your blessing, and we ask, God, for, for your life-giving spirit to flow. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Having a heart of gratitude will open our eyes to what God is already doing in our lives, in our midst. And, uh, you know, I was reminded of this one passage of Scripture that uh, really shows us that gratitude, thankfulness is, is meant to be something more characteristic of a way of life for anybody seeking to follow Jesus. It, it's actually meant to be more than a once a year event, as good as that may be. It's meant to be something that we wear continually. And I was drawn to this one small passage where uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica and he gave them some clear, concise instructions. And it's right there in the middle of your handout. He, he said to them, I want you to always be joyful. I want you to always look for reasons to be full of joy. I want you to never stop praying. Never cut yourself off from communicating with the one who created you. Always remain open through prayer to the Lord. And then he says something that is, uh, if we really let it sink in, is countercultural to this time in which we live. Because what he says next is he says, I want you to be thankful in all circumstances. He doesn't say, I want you to be thankful and remember to be thankful and grateful when good things happen. He doesn't say, I want you to remember to appreciate the good things of life when they come 
or the relationships or the different points of success. If you get what you want, remember, be thankful. No, he, he says in every circumstance, be thankful. And, and just so that he um, makes sure that they don't receive this as merely his opinion, he decides to put a little bit more of weight behind this particular instruction. He says, this, this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. This is his purpose for you, that, um, that if we are seeking to follow Jesus, we become stronger in our ability to remain thankful in all of our circumstances. That this is a growing part of who we are. And he says quite abruptly, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Which is implying that uh, to be thankful is to fall in alignment with what God is doing. And to step out of a spirit of gratitude is to essentially blockade what he's trying to do. To obstruct it to stifle it, to interrupt it, or maybe even to turn blind to what he's seeking to do in our midst. It's a powerful principle. Having a heart of gratitude inevitably opens our eyes to what God is already doing in our midst. And I was thinking of this, and I was reminded of an incident in my childhood in which this lesson of becoming grateful was impressed into uh, and to me, in a very profound way. And it happened when I was a, I was a child. I was pretty hyper as a boy. And um, I used to get in trouble a, a lot. And, uh, and I had the fortune of growing up with my parents and my grandfather in the same household. See, my parents came over to the States uh, about a year before I was born. And they got married here. And, and, and about you know, a year or so later, uh, I was about to be born. And my grandfather ended up moving here as well temporarily moved in with them, and that temporary circumstance became a permanent one. And so I ended up having my grandfather on one hand in his perspective, and then on my parents on the other, and it became something that I've become deeply appreciative for. But I, I, there was a season in my life where um, my, I don't know, my perspective of boundaries were such that they were meant to be overcome. They were meant to be kind of see, you, you have to find the, the quickest way to go around them, to get away from them. And, uh, and so that would land me in my room a, a lot. And um, <laughs> my form of punishment was to go to my room and to sit there, and all entertainment was stripped, and I would be able to sit there. And the, kind of the agreement was you, the, the more you whine, the more you try to persuade us to let you out, the longer you will stay in there. And so I had to stay in there quietly waiting for my sentence to be served. And I, uh, I remember that I would be sitting there over times and my grandfather developed kind of a habit of, of, of concisely wrapping up his opinion of the matter. And he would end up uh, knocking on the door. Then he would open the door and he would come in and he would look at me and he would say one-liners to me. Something like, for example, he would say something like, uh, está bien, algún día aprenderás. Which is to say, it's okay. One day you'll learn. He would tap me on the back of the head, and then he would walk out. Or he, he would say something like, you know, he would come in, and, and he, he would look at me, and, I, and sometimes I'd be crying, and so he'd just look at me and stare, and he would, he would give me his thoughts on the matter and, and, or some instruction. So, for example, he would say something like, stop crying. It, it's, it's not going to take the pain away. Hit me on the back of the head and walk out the door. 
very comforting. And I remember, you know, just looking up to my grandfather because I, I had known him when I was a little boy as this man who had lived kind of a, a tough life and his hands were filled with calluses and they were rough. And so I used to kind of feel that. And I remember wrestling with him and he was kind of in his mid to late 50s, was a little shorter than I, stockier. And he would show me who was, who was the boss when his arm was around my neck. And, and so he would, he would let me know, you know, that he was in control. And so I felt like, man, he's strong. And I remember seeing photographs of him when he was younger, and he would just look very um, confident. And uh, it just felt like that, that, that's my, he's, he's the man. And so when he would say things like this, it would kind of catch me, right? It would hit me because I, I, I couldn't just write him off. I, I respected and admired him, and, and I wasn't necessarily in that position towards my parents. And so he would come and say these things to me, and, and he, would, um, he would say different things. So I remember one time, for example, there was a, a, a set of seven days of consecutively getting in trouble. And, uh, and on the seventh day, my, my punishment was accruing. It, it became more like months of ground being grounded. And so I sat there my room kind of trying to have them alleviate what I was going to suffer the rest of the year. And, uh, and so I was crying and again. And he, he walks in and he looks at me and he just stared and he says, you know, if only you were this sorry before you got in trouble. <laughs> Hit me on the back of the head and walked out of the room. And then I remember one time he uh, decided to turn the tables a little bit. And uh, I was pretty upset with my parents, felt they were unfair. Sat down in front of me and just said, you know what, Lewis, you need to appreciate your parents. Because you only have one mom, and you only have one dad. Hit me on the back of the head and walked out. And. Uh, about a week later, we were kind of neighbors. We shared rooms next to each other. And so uh, my parents were out of the house. And he called me into his room. And he sat me down. And he says, I, I, wa I want you to really hear me. You need to appreciate your parents. You only have one mom. And you only have one dad. And then noticing that I wasn't maybe receiving it, he says, let me tell you my story. And he starts sharing. My grandfather, when he was around five or six, had been orphaned. He was around three years old or so. He was told by some uh, people in the family that his mother got sick. And sickness turned to a, a kind of a grave illness that she never recovered from. Ended up taking her life. She ended up passing away. And he doesn't really remember that. He's just been told about that. And about several years later, around five or six, he ended up, um, apparently his father owned a little bit of land. And there was a dispute over uh, the land, and the person that was disputing with my grandfather's dad allowed their anger to fill them with rage. And that rage expressed itself violently and ended up taking his father's life. And my grandfather, at around five or six, ended up being taken in by a family immediately. And in retrospect, he looks back and he realizes what had happened. He became the family servant. Because back then, they didn't have plumbing. They didn't have any kind of grocery stores of that nature. 
And so what would happen is in the morning, he would get up early, he'd get these barrels, and he'd have a rope hanging around him, and he'd go down to the river, fill them up, and then come back and, and give water for the family. He would go out and get milk from the cows, which would, they'd be milking them down the street. And then he would have other chores to do throughout the house. And he ended up doing this for about a year. By the end of the day, this is all he did. He, he served the family. And about a year later, there was a uh, distant friend of his parents who was curious about his situation, ended up investigating what had happened, had heard about his parents passing abruptly, found out where he was staying, made her way, the single mom with two children, made her way to where he was staying, found out the circumstances in which he was living, and ended up asking the family to release him to her care. And they did. And she adopted him. And she ended up providing for him a modest education. And he remembers that around the age of 10, she sat him down and said, now listen, I'm not going to be able to do this for you forever. So you're going to have to learn how to be on your own two feet. I'm going to, I'm going to send you to different places. And you're going to learn some trades. And the goal is that right around 17 or 18, you should be living on your own, working. And so he did that. And he, he let me know that everything she did for that period of around eight years was meant to get him to a place of independence. And he saw her work hard, two jobs, with two children, and make connections whatever way she could to allow him to have a future he would not have had had she not gone to where he was staying. And by the end of him sharing his story, he you could just sense the depth of gratitude he had for this woman. And then he looked at me and he says, now I want you to remember this. You only have one mom and you only have one dad. You need to appreciate that. And over the years, I've heard more details and I've heard more of what had happened and how that affected him so deeply. And I remember just... Each time he decides to share this portion of his story, he just wells up with a gratitude that is it's, it's truly hard to explain. And You know, I share that story because it didn't change the way I, I, I behaved right away. I, I probably got in trouble that afternoon. <laughs> but it definitely made an impression on me. And I wonder how many of us, when we get wrapped up in our agendas and in the pursuit of accomplishing different goals and in maybe our own personal ambitions to succeed, and maybe they may have a desire to bless others at the end of the day, but we have this uh, tendency to get wrapped up in constant activity, projects, goals, expectations to live up to. And all the while, what happens is we become less and less sensitive to the different things that God has already done in our lives or is seeking to do. And our response is usually not one of gratitude. It's usually one of criticism or desire to escape the situation we're in. And so maybe some of us, there are different points of frustration we're currently walking through or interruptions that we did not plan on, that we would not desire, and we do not feel grateful at all for them. And they may be God's tool trying to get us to open our eyes 
to what he is already doing in our midst. And the only way we will see it is by stepping into a spirit of thankfulness. And there's this powerful account in Jesus' ministry in which there's this interaction between this woman, a Pharisee, and Jesus himself that brings to the forefront what it looks like to demonstrate gratitude and from where such a river flows and what it does to us. It's found in Luke 7, and we're going to look at this passage together, and it's this account of this interaction that happens. We're told in verse 36 that one of the Pharisees, a, a teacher of the Jewish religious law, he, a member of the elite class, asked Jesus to have dinner with him, a, a sign of wanting to get to know Jesus, of maybe wanting to see who he is, maybe he had heard about him, had heard what people say about him, what he has uh, done, what he is capable of. And so in the desire to get to know Jesus, he invites him over in the most common way of uh, kind of inviting people into a point of intimacy. And he says, would you have dinner with me? And Jesus, Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat, which would be a different kind of table setting than where we're accustomed to. It would be much lower to the ground. There wouldn't be chairs per se. There would be more cushions around it, and there would be much more of an intimate setting where they would be lying on their sides, and the feet would be away from the food, and the food would be in the center, and they would be dialoguing together. And in this setting, as they're talking, and maybe as a Pharisee is asking Jesus different questions, and they're interacting and catching up together or getting to become associated with each other, something happens. We're told in verse 37 that a certain immoral woman, defined as such, comes in from the city, heard that he was eating there, and so she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And this would not be out of the ordinary for when... Anybody of um, social standing would have some, a guest, a distinguished person over their home. The house, unless otherwise stated, would be open to the public if they were interested. And so there was kind of this open access for people to come in and mingle around the dialogue, around the dinner setting, so they could maybe glean, maybe hear, or be able to see what this person is all about. And so the fact that she comes in besides the fact that maybe everyone around her knew what kind of reputation she carried, would not be out of the ordinary. However, what would happen next would be startling, to say the least. Because we're told in verse 38 that she comes in with her beautiful alabaster jar with the expensive perfume. She knelt behind him, being Jesus, at his feet weeping. We're told that her tears fell at his feet. And so she makes her way over to where Jesus is at, kneels at his feet, and is just weeping over him. And then we're told that she takes her hair and decides to dry the tears with her hair. And she decides to start kissing his feet, opens her alabaster jar, and starts pouring it over, and is just weeping, trying, pouring, kissing. And this event becomes an extreme interruption 
to what was happening. And if we were just to pause here for a minute, we get a picture of God's amazing grace. Because on one hand, this man who is able to quiet the storms of the sea and multiply food to feed thousands and give sight to the blind and speak truth, not a respecter of any man, is willing to be invited and approach a man who may not invite them out of a sense of need, more out of curiosity, maybe mixed with a little bit of cynicism. And yet Jesus receives the invitation and draws near. And the same man does not recoil when a woman who may be coming in with a reputation that would cause her to feel nothing but shame begins to touch him in a rather intimate way. He remains accessible to both. And we see how beautiful our Lord truly is. And because he doesn't recoil, because he doesn't refuse her, because he doesn't correct her, the Pharisee has a rather serious conflict within him. We're told in verse 39 that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he says to himself, if this, were, if this man were a prophet, like so many say he is, the way I see it, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. Therefore, he clearly isn't. Because if he knew who she was, obviously he would tell her to stop and to leave. Why? Because she's a sinner. And in his worldview, there are those who have access to people like Jesus, and there are those who shouldn't even dare. And it's this inner dialogue in Simon that causes Jesus to respond. And it's an interesting phrase that's used. Verse 40, we're told that then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon didn't say a word, but Jesus heard what he thought. And he looks at him and he says, now, Simon, I, I, I have something to say to you. And maybe a little bit startled, the teacher, the Pharisee looks at him and he says, go ahead, teacher. What do you want to say? He says, I have a story to say to you. I want to step into how you see things. I want to give you something. Verse 41, he says, listen, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other. A substantially large amount to one loaned it to them. And although a decreased amount, still a large amount, 50 pieces of silver to the other, loaned it to both of them. This is how you see things, no? There are those with large debts and those with small debts. Okay. Neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both. The, the, the one with the enormous amount of debt was unable to repay the man, and the man with substantially less amount of debt was also unable to repay the loan, and so the man kindly forgave them both. I, I have a question for you. Who do you suppose loved him more after that happened? 
Simon says, well, it's, it's as clear as day. I, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's pretty obvious. She says, that's right. That's right. But just so we understand who's who, I want to define some things for you. He turned to the woman who is most likely still weeping. And he says to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. Look at her. When I entered your home, you you didn't offer me water to wash my feet, which is the custom. It is the custom for any host, any person inviting a guest to have a water basin at your door and to allow them to wash the dust off of their feet when they come in. It is a common, minimal courtesy, but you didn't do that. She, on the other hand, has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I want you to notice the contrast, Simon. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, a common courtesy to refresh your guests and let them know they are appreciated for being here. But she has gone far above and beyond that. She has anointed my feet with rare perfume. And I know how you see things, Simon. And so hear this. I tell you, her sins, yes, they are many. They have been forgiven. And if you see a contrast, see it here. She has shown me much, much love. Because the person who is forgiven little, who sees very little need for forgiveness, ends up loving little. He turns to the woman, if we were to read on, he says, I want you to go in peace. Don't carry this weight anymore. And then he lets it sit there. We have a contrast. We have a man who was not able to demonstrate the common courtesy. Their level of gratitude was restrained, was short in its effort. And we have a woman who maybe felt far from worthy, yet ended up demonstrating far more gratitude, even though she may have been less capable of it in terms of resources and means. And in this interaction, I'm hoping that we're able to glean some things that God may want to say to us in this season in which we're encouraged to practice the virtue of gratitude. First thing I'd like to just put on the board is that it is plain to see that Jesus, Jesus demonstrates something. That the Lord's heart is moved by sincere expressions of gratitude. What we see here is that a woman who is um, probably regarded as having nothing of substance ends up giving something to Jesus that is more substantial to him than the Pharisee could ever offer him. That the woman who came in weighed down by things that she may have regarded as uh, empty 
ended up becoming a person who touched Jesus so deeply that he did not mind of the interruption or the awkwardness of the moment. He, in fact, decided to defend her when she came under scrutiny. And not only did he decide to defend her, he ended up stepping into Simon's world a little bit and letting him know that he notices how he's treated. And what happens in this interaction is that we get to see something of the Lord's heart. And he is touched deeply by authentic, vulnerable, genuine gratitude, which for some of us may be our word. That in this season in which our culture is so open to Christmas carols being sung all through the radio or in the, in the mall, maybe for, for us, our goal, our desire, our uh, prompting is to step into a place of being vulnerable before God for all of the things that we are thankful for and grateful for, for everything he has done in a way that is not guarded, but actually uh, willing and able to bow before him because of the depth of what he has given. And what happens is that not only is the Lord's heart touched, but something else happens. See, when we step into a heart of gratitude, it becomes a source of blessing for others, which is quite a powerful example in this picture that we've been given. Because in the immoral woman's case, she brought in probably her most prized possession. And out of her gratitude was compelled to give it away. Because gratitude, when it fills us, when we practice becoming thankful for the different things we have in our lives, when we maybe rise up earlier in the morning and decide to thank him for the simple things like the fact that we have breath in our lungs in another day ahead of us, or that we have clothing on us, or we have food at the table, things that maybe we have taken for granted because of the way we live and the society we live in. That as we become increasingly thankful, we also become increasingly generous. Because we start to recognize how much, not how much we need, but how much we have. And we start to want to become givers of life. I wonder how many of us have a person in our life that if we were just to take a moment or so and write them a letter of appreciation, it would end up becoming the best gift they have received. How many of us are surrounded by people that are so quick to judge themselves and scrutinize themselves because they, above anyone else, knows all of their flaws and what they need is somebody willing to step into their world and affirm the good things going on. Willing to affirm what is right about them. How many of us are supposed to refresh those around us, supposed to appreciate those near us, and thank them, And out of our gratitude, we get to step into a spirit of generosity and we get to experience what Jesus said all along, that it is always more blessed to give than it is to receive. We get to be the hand that gives. We get to be the person who serves. We get to be the person who washes in his name, who encourages in his name, who prays for somebody else. 
we get to be that person when we develop a heart of gratitude. It's powerful. Because what will happen inevitably is gratitude in the hands of our creator becomes a tool to transform us. See, this is what happens is when we exercise this discipline, this virtue, it enables us to become the person God calls us to be. It has been said that gratitude is the mother of all virtues. That when we step into this um, habit, pride may loosen its grip around us. Discontent may diminish in its strength. A critical nature may end up losing power over us. And as we become able to point out the good things that God is already doing and things that people are already inhabiting within us and the different things that we have already been blessed with, what happens is we end up changing. The woman who entered, defined as immoral, left, defined as forgiven. The woman who entered with next to nothing and gave everything she had, left as the most generous person in the room because it flowed out of a heart of gratitude for what he has done. Maybe some of us, it's not a matter of reminding ourselves what we've been given, but of what we have been forgiven. And as we dig deep into the well of our need for his grace, we can't help but extend grace to those near us. And it might help us forgive those who are indebted to us. It might help us to love those we find difficult to love. And we end up becoming more like Jesus, the greatest gift to mankind. May we exercise in the art, in the habit of gratitude. And may it open our eyes to what he is already doing in our midst and what he is seeking to do through us. And may this season be defined by our ability to always be joyful and to be thankful in all of our circumstances. In a minute, we're going to receive our time of giving and have a song we're going to close together and we're going to get to share in the different reasons we are thankful and I'm hoping it's just the beginning of a season of gratitude. May this be the case. Let's pray. God, thank you. I just thank you, Lord, that you are accessible to anyone who approaches you. I thank you, God, that your grace and your love, it knows no bounds. May it penetrate deep within us. May it loosen the soil of our heart and may it deposit the seeds of life that will sprout and not just transform us but end up blessing those around us. May you carry out the good work you have started. And may in this season in which we as a people, as a culture, are more open than ever to your goodness, May something of your power fill our words and our actions and our lives in such a way that others may see our good works and give glory to you, Father, in heaven. 
We pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.